This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership. And my co-hosts today, Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall, are responsible for the McNulty Leadership Program here at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're very modern. We're taping today on Zoom. So I just want to remind everybody that for new episodes, including uh, the one you're hearing now, you can hear us on Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And of course, don't forget to follow us on at SXM Business. So uh, let me just say to my two colleagues before we introduce our an extremely interesting guest, uh, Ann and Jeff, how are you both doing, beginning with Jeff? All right. Well, I know you asked me first, so I couldn't say I was better than Ann. I'll just say I'm doing just fine, Mike. All right. So, and there's your opening to <laughs> compare yourself with your colleague and how you're doing. Right. I'm doing just fine, certainly as well as Jeff. <laughs> okay. Well, I like the the equity piece there. So, no, uh, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I said, how are you? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm as equally good as the two of you. <laughs> so there it is. So as is our custom, we're going to take just a minute to uh, think about the week that was uh, the topic here of our program, of course, leadership in action. And you've all been in discussions, I am sure, about what's not going to unchange once we get through this uh, coronavirus, what's going to be um, forever different. And as you think about leadership, let's make it a couple years out compared to um, BC, before the coronavirus, um, and maybe uh, start us off, what what do you see as a, an irreversible change in how businesses or hospitals or the country is led and run? Well, Mike, we might be illustrating it right now. I think the fact that just if I look at a micro, a micro moment, a microcosm, our own office of 26 people are now dispersed and all working from home. And although some have adapted and to the change maybe more smoothly than others, I think there are a good number who say, gee, <laughs> there's some unanticipated benefits of working at home. Yep. And so I think it's going to be, um, there will be a new normal, so to speak, when we get back to work. And it wouldn't surprise me if there is more remote work, even in corners of business that, you know, never thought that it would it would be likely or possible. So learning to lead unface to face. That's right. Set right. To get good at that. Uh, Jeff, what's your thought? What's irreversible? What will be new in leadership next couple of years? Well, it, it seems to me, I mean, one of the things that's been reinforced here over um, certainly the last seven weeks, probably the last, you know, three to six months, is just how inextricably tied and connected businesses to the rest of society and that a, you know, a, uh, a healthy business sector is one that is constantly um, in contact with and adjusting with the, the governmental and the, the nonprofit sectors. Um, and and I'd, I'd like to believe that that awareness and that that focus uh, will continue uh, for years to come. I guess to thank you on that, to add my own quick thought, I think uh, leadership, the way we tend to think about it is about the people at the apex. And in my own personal view, I think uh, leadership is going to be much more dispersed. We're all going to be called upon to make a difference. So there it is as a way of getting going on the program. And today we have a, a very interesting and distinguished guest, Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca, great to have you on the program. Mike, it's a delight to be here. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. And Rebecca, I'm going to say a couple things about you for our listeners. And then we're going to uh, plunge right in. Uh, you served on the faculty at MIT Sloan School for a number of years. 
and in recent years have been on the faculty at the Harvard Business School. Uh, and I love the areas that you are, you describe yourself as being responsible for general management and strategy. That's right. That seems like a really good idea to think about that, to teach that, uh, to have that at hand. And you've uh, taught a very successful course at the Harvard Business School called Reimagining Capitalism. And I think that's uh, morphed into a new book that you have coming out. Uh, listen to the full title, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Let's uh, make that the central focus of where we're going. And uh, Rebecca, did you get lucky on that second half of that title, a world, a world on Fire? The book coming out in the coronavirus, little did we realize maybe five months ago the world would be on fire. So just speak about that title, The World on Fire. Oh, Mike. So I've been working on this book for three years. Oh, good. Finally came out last Tuesday. Wow. So oh, it feels, awesome. <laughs> it feels fabulous to have it out in the world. When I began, the title was um, a little out there. People would say, really? A world on fire? Don't you think you're pressing it a little, Rebecca? But now, alas, it seems uh, all too apposite. I mean, to be fair, starting with the California and, and Australian fires last summer, it, it was clear the world was not in a great place. And I think what the coronavirus has done is really highlight a number of weaknesses that were already there. And so, yes, the title is is apposite. I, I wish it wasn't. I wish we weren't where we are right now. But alas, I feel we're, we're not in a great place. Thank you on that. And let's go back then to the first two words of your course and then the book, Reimagining Capitalism. Uh, for, for readers uh, who probably have some sense for what that's going to reference to, but to help us all appreciate uh, the, the template here, your thinking here, on reimagining capitalism. What needs reimagining now? I think there are three things that need to be reimagined. All, aspect all aspects of one big problem. And the big problem is that we've let the heart of capitalism, the free market, get out of balance. My reading of history, and indeed, as we look across the world, is that societies work better when the free market is in balance with a transparent, strong, accountable, democratically elected government. This is not a new idea. The development economists and the political scientists call it inclusive institutions. The idea that a free society needs a free market and free politics, and that the two in partnership work together to build a fantastic dynamic economy and a strong society and take care of public goods like the environment. And I think what's happened over the last 50 years is that we got so confident in our government, so confident in our society, that we focused all our energy on the free market. And I'm a huge fan of capitalism. You know, sometimes when I'm talking about my books, I remember giving a talk at my old high school and a 16-year-old in the front row looked at me and she said, reimagine capitalism? Shouldn't we just throw it out the window? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, no, no, that would be a really bad idea. <laughs> um, I think capitalism is incredible. It generates jobs and uh, prosperity, innovation, creativity. But when it's all you focus on, you get some of the problems we have. You get a neglect of the environment. I think climate change is a real and present danger. It's not some distant thing. We're already seeing the effects on um, agriculture and uh, we're seeing floods and droughts. When Houston gets hit by three 500-year storms in a three-year period, it's like, whoa, what, what's going on? So I'm really worried about climate change and the way we're just using our environment uh, to dump all our junk into. Uh, 
We're killing the sea. The Great Barrier Reef had another major ble bleaching event. Coral reefs will be dead by 2050. I mean, yes, that's bad for scuba divers, but it's food for a billion people. A billion people eat the fish from, uh, from coral reefs. So we have huge environmental problems. We have massive and accelerating inequality, and coronavirus has highlighted all the costs of that in really heartbreaking ways. And last but not least, something funky is happening with our politics. Our politics have become very divisive. It seems to be very hard to think about the long-term good of the society as a whole. We've got a lot of angry populism from both sides. You know, something is not right. And I think coronavirus has really highlighted that, as I said. So, yes, I do think we need to reimagine capitalism. Great. Rebecca, thank you on that. Um, as I think we gave you a heads up, we're a bit of a tag team here. And with that as my transition, I'm going to bring Anne into our dialogue. Well, Rebecca, really such a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you. So given the, that the problem is that capitalism is out of balance, am I uh, reading you right to think that reimagining shareholder value is one way to put capitalism back into balance? Yes, you are. I think we have to be thoughtful about how we think about shareholder value. I'm on the boards of two large and successful public companies. One is a Fortune 200. So I understand completely the pressures that firms are under to deliver good returns to their investors. And I think generating shareholder value is crucially important. I think, however, it's not enough that just as we let the market get out of balance, we've let shareholder value get out of balance. And that we should think about shareholder value in some way as a means to an end. It always was a means to an end. The goal was to generate healthy firms, long-term returns, healthy societies, not shareholder value this quarter. That was always just a kind of means to get there. So similarly, I think we need to broaden how we think about shareholder value to include a responsibility to the health of the entire system. That, that sounds kind of vague, but you know, one of the easiest ways to make money in some industries is to try and bend the rules of the game in your own favor. Well, that, that's not what Milton Friedman meant. I mean, he was a super smart guy. And to go out and argue for a monopoly to keep entrance, you know, to keep small firms out of your business, that's not a great way to maximize shareholder value. That's contrary to capitalism. To go out and argue when you know the science that we don't need some kind of regulation on global warming pollution, that, that is good for you if you're a fossil fuel company. It's not great for society. And it's distorting the rules, right? If technically, if externalities are not properly priced, if I can dump stuff into the atmosphere that's you know, causing enormous health damage right now and then long-term climate damage, that's not free and fair capitalism either. And that's not a great way to maximize shareholder value. So I sort of want to put shareholder value back in balance, if, if that makes sense. And maybe just one follow-up. Isn't this a lesson that those of us in the United States in particular need to learn. Uh, those in Europe uh, are more, you know, think more in terms of stakeholder value rather than shareholder. I, that's exactly right. Not everywhere in Europe is, mm -hmm. you know, great. But mm -hmm. if we look particularly at countries like Germany and Denmark, mm -hmm. where historically firms have been deeply embedded in their societies mm -hmm. and investor returns have been one goal, but not the only goal, I think we're now seeing, I mean, in the pandemic, we're now seeing them respond much more successfully. And the US and the UK, which really embrace shareholder value at any cost, have been amongst, alas, the leaders in accelerating inequality and social divisiveness. So yes, moving more back into balance, I'm not saying we should pick up the European model. I think the US has its own history and its own ways of approaching this, but that general approach seems to me very fruitful. Very good, thank you. Great, thank you, Rebecca. I'm gonna break in, by the way, and remind our listeners this is Leadership in Action. We're on Business Radio, Series XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. 
And uh, we're in dialogue with Rebecca Henderson, author of Reimagining Capitalism and a World on Fire. And of course, we're here with Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall. The three of us work with the Nulti Leadership Center at the Wharton School. Uh, Jeff, jump into the picture here. All right, thanks, Mike. And great to have you on the show, Rebecca. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the book and, and by many of the, the arguments that you advance within it. Um, and, and you started to mention one that I, that I wanted to make sure that we focused on, which is, you know, the um, the costs that are included within within the price of goods, whether they're commodity goods, um, energy is an example you use in the book, uh, or whether they're you know more public goods. Um, can you talk a little bit about? First, what what that concept represents for us, and then and then maybe shed a little bit of light on how we got here. Sure. So, and and let me say, I'm loving being on the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Let me start with the example of coal-generated electricity. So imagine you have a cup full of electrons that you're holding a cup full of of uh, electricity. And I mean, that's wonderful stuff, right? I use it all the time. I'm using it right now to talk to you. It can be generated in different ways. If it was made by burning coal in a coal-fired power plant, to a first approximation, it costs about five cents for a kilowatt hour. So that's a measure of electricity, but let's suppose that's five cents for that cup full of electricity. When you burn coal, you generate two additional effects. In addition to making electricity, you make what's called particulates, tiny, tiny particles that uh, go right up the smokestack, even with the best modern pollution controls, uh, into the atmosphere. And those are very dangerous for health. They include things like mercury and uh, nitrous oxides. Approximately 8 million people die every year worldwide because of the pollution generated by burning coal. It's much worse overseas than it is in here or Europe because we have better pollution controls, but 8 million people a year. In the US alone, the public health people estimate it costs between 25 and 6% of US GDP is uh, health costs of burning fossil fuels. And that includes cars and uh, burning oil to power cars and so on. But th the reason I'm banging on, it's like, this is a big number. So if we go back to our handful of electricity, just the health costs of generating that electricity is another five cents. So that's a lot. Yeah. But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> also having an effect on the climate because you're pumping out carbon dioxide. And estimating the long-term costs of climate change, whoa, super hard, okay, big fights. Let's take a very conservative estimate. Um, I've really spent some time with these estimates. I promise you this is close to the bottom of the range it's another five cents. So every time the coal company sells five cents worth of electricity, it's generating 10 cents worth of damage. Half of that right now and half of that on generations to come. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the coal company is creating twice as much harm, and, and I promise this is a low end estimate, twice as much harm as the good it's generating. And when you do these kinds of estimates for other firms, the uh, effects of burning and using cost fossil fuels, I pick coal because it's by far the worst, but the, for the rest of the economy, the harms that are created by using fossil fuels are the same order of magnitude as the profits that are generated. So this is not a minor at the edge mispricing. This is a fundamental mispricing uh, that that as I said, I think any capitalist should be super concerned about. Because if capitalism is generating prosperity, this is not what it should look like. Yeah. And I mean, the, the example that you're giving, there, there are some costs that the coal company bears a, as a firm, as an organization. Who bears the other costs? Um, and, you know, uh, forgive me for possibly oversimplifying it, but who decides uh, which costs should be borne, borne by a firm um, versus the larger society? Well, 
in the abstract, if we're sitting quietly in our office, we want governments to come along and say, wait, you just can't cause all this health damage. Mm -hmm. You should, you know, pay for it or your customers should pay for it. Maybe I should be paying for it. I'm using that electricity. I'm causing that harm. I think in many ways, that's a better way to think about it. I'm causing that harm. I should you know, pay to offset it, to, to ameliorate it. And, and the really distressing thing about this, Jeff, is that when you say who's bearing the harm, it tends to be people who are among the most disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coal plants tend to be located near communities of color, minority communities, people who can afford, who can't afford to pay the high-priced lawyers to keep the coal plant away. Um, All of us, to some degree, are bearing the cost. As a a female on the East Coast, statistically, I almost certainly have elevated levels of a number of nasty chemicals in my blood. Um, They're high enough that if I were of childbearing age, statistically, I have significant, I would have significant danger of of birth defects. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere, right? And climate change, of course, climate change is coming for everyone, but it's coming for the poorest and those at the edge fastest. So Bangladesh is going to suffer massive floods. We're going to see millions of people migrating. Most of South Vietnam will probably be underwater by 2050. It's very unlikely that we can do anything about that now. So it, it, it's the people at the edge. I mean, agriculture in Africa is already suffering sort of massive drought and floods. So we're going to see that the, the people who can least afford it are bearing these costs. So as I sit here in my comfortable office using this electricity, I, I wish I didn't think this, but I know how much harm I'm causing. And, and this is a real thing. This, this is not capitalism. <laughs> this this is an uncorrected externality. I'm sorry to use the technical term, but it's literally I'm externalizing the costs while keeping the benefits. That that's what's happening. Mike, back to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca, in a minute we're going to take a a very short breather, but I want to get into our discussion. Uh, the title of uh, an early chapter that begins to make the case, here's the title, A Business Case for Shared Value. And just to put a a, a sentence on that, we tend uh, to think historically about trade-offs. So when shareholders gain, other stakeholders lose. But you've got an argument that's so well laid out in this uh, chapter on a business case for shared value Uh, If you could, I'm going to take a break in just about three minutes here, but if you could just get us going maybe with one of your great examples, uh, Unilever, whoever you want to pick, that has managed to figure out how to do it as an and. I can serve shareholders and I can serve other stakeholders. Sure. As you suggest, a key part of my book is pointing out all the ways in which we can make a lot of money by tackling these kinds of problems. One of my favorite examples is uh, about the Unilever tea business, where a fairly lowly brand manager called Michel Legens got assigned to Unilever's tea business. And he became aware of all the environmental damage that growing tea was causing, and the fact that the people who picked the tea often were inadequately paid, didn't have clean water, their kids weren't able to go to school. I mean, really serious problems in the tea business. Unilever sold, and I believe continues to sell, about 30% of all the branded tea worldwide. So Michelle said, like, whoa, you know, we should do something about this. Let's embrace sustainable tea. And one of the reasons I love this case is initially his superiors said, Michelle, would you, um, you know, lie down until the feeling goes away? Because it's going to be more expensive to grow the tea in a way that's sustainable. And we happen to know that consumers won't pay anymore. We face tough, tough competition. Our consumers, this is 15 years ago, you know, they, they don't care. Just snap out of it. And he went ahead and working with his team said, no, no, I, I, I know we can do this. And they started to look around for all the ways in which going sustainable would really make a difference. And one of the arguments they advanced was, uh, and this has been borne out, that growing tea would make it 
would make the stability of the supply chain much more, um, it would make mean that in the long term, everybody had tea, great. It would increase the, the salience of the brand. So even if people wouldn't make, pay more, people would shift. It would, it would uh, attract employees. And 10 years later, we know he was right on every single count. Unilever sustainable brands, including tea, are growing faster, have more, um, more sustainable supply chains. And Unilever for a while was one of the most attractive employees in the world, up there with Google and Microsoft. Yep. So Rebecca, a question posed now, we'll take about a minute to walk through it and then we're gonna take this break that I warned us about. There's an issue on who's gonna actually make this happen. So in the case of Unilever, you had a, uh, an insightful, forward-looking chief executive. So some of the change is coming from within inside, and you cite a number of companies where you've seen it. But the outside world, the, the non-business world, governments, uh, social movements, and so on, probably have a lot to do with this, as do big investors, uh, and you reference them all. So in looking for an engine to get us to reimagine capitalism, where do you think the uh, high octane fuel is going to be most located to drive some of the changes that you propose? In a minute. In a minute. There it is. <laughs> Mike asked tough questions, Rebecca. <laughs> you, you got it, Mike. In a minute. Where's the fuel going to come from? Yeah. Yeah. Firstly, purpose-driven firms like Unilever, who can get a positive flywheel going and begin to transform their industries. Second, from the employees who are beginning to insist that firms act this way. Third, from the big investors who own so much of the world's financial assets that they can't diversify away from the problems we face. If I own 7% of the Japanese stock exchange, to pick one example, I can't diversify away from the risk of climate change to the Japanese economy. It's a real risk to my portfolio right now. So the big investors are going to be a major driver of change. And then last but not least, we're not going to change without major political and social change. So that's why we need citizens. That's why we need uh, forward-thinking politicians to begin to understand the difficulties we face and to work together with business and uh, the big money to rebuild our society in a more balanced and, and more just way. Rebecca, extremely well put in a minute. So thank you on that. We'll come back to that. I'm going to do a follow-up question, but I need to remind everybody we are involved in the McNulty Leadership Program at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking over the last half hour with Rebecca Henderson, author of a really interesting and compelling new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World of Fire. Given the events of the last couple of months, we know the world is on fire and we better get on with that reimagining. Rebecca, I'm gonna get our dialogue going here right now with a follow-up question from before the break. Uh, the Business Roundtable, an association of, of some 200 chief executive officers of large U.S. firms, put out a statement, as we all know, middle of last or at the end of last summer, urging, in a sense, uh, the, the agenda that you've uh, laid out in the book to become more stakeholder, less shareholder focused. So question just to give it a sharp edge, do you see the Business Roundtable as one of those significant engines for change along with people who run companies, public policy, and so on. So back to the business roundtable. What, what's your view of them and of it and the role it's playing right now? I think the business roundtable could be a very significant force for positive change. It's a little early to tell uh, whether they're going to step up to that and move forward. But let me make the case that they could be absolutely crucial. First, I believe that large companies who think of themselves as more stakeholder-driven, or the term I use in the book is more purpose-focused, that is, that are clear that their reason for being is not to make money, that making money and returning 
value to investors is critically important, but it's a means to an end, and the end is helping to build a strong society, satisfy their customers, provide great jobs, you know, be a full partner in society. Those firms have the chance to be completely catalytic inside their industries because they have the courage and the vision to walk forwards into the new way of doing things. One image that I find helpful is, uh, is to think of the time we're in as a Kodak moment. Now, what do I mean by that? So Kodak, as Mike, I'm sure you remember, was a photography company that basically invented conventional film photography. And in their time, people said of them, there was nothing more profitable that was legal. You know, it's an incredibly profitable firm. It was just raining money on top of them. And part of the place they put the money was to MIT, where I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management, which was deeply ironic because that's what I studied. I studied very large firms that couldn't see that the world was changing. So I spent like a year of my life trying to persuade Nokia, no one remembers Nokia now, but at the time they were selling a million cell phones a week, trying to persuade Nokia. Apple was like, you really should pay attention to this, please. And and so I'm, I became one of the world's experts on, you know, why it was so hard to do this. And here I am, the Eastman Kodak professor, and here's Kodak. And are they changing to respond to digital photography? Don't get me wrong. They did a lot of great things, but in the end, it wasn't enough. They went bankrupt. It's complete coincidence that that was the year I moved to Harvard. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a joke or not, but... <laughs> I like it. So, we like it. So I think of the moment we're in as like a Kodak moment for the world. Mm. We can see that continuing to go in the direction we're going, just throwing carbon pollution out the window, treating our employees as if they're completely interchangeable units, and it's not our job to worry if the educational systems are failing them and the healthcare system is a mess and the political system is not investing in the kinds of public goods we need for a healthy society. <laughs> but that's like not going to work. So we know there's a transition coming. And what these purpose-driven firms are doing is looking at that transition and saying, okay, I can do this. And they're walking into it. So you see firms like Impossible Foods, right? If I had told you a year ago that the most successful IPO of 20 years would be a plant-based meat company, you would be like, <laughs> excuse me? You know? <laughs> but it's, it's firms like that that have the courage to do new things. So I think the individual firms can be super important. Now, Mike, to your earlier question, clearly not enough right? I mean, this is a major social change we're looking at. So let's think about organizations like the BRT. What is the BRT? It's a way of pulling a bunch of firms together and saying, okay, what do we as a group think should happen? And my reading of history and a bunch of the research in this area is although that's not enough to drive social and political change, it's super helpful. Because one of the things we need is some tough choices and some political action. And for any individual firm, getting too involved politically is super tricky, right? I mean, I'm on the board of a Fortune 200. Ask me if we support Republicans or Democrats. Both, always both, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we value members on both sides of the aisle. If you're a firm, you don't want to make an enemy of any political party. You don't want to take any position that's too partisan um, unless, you're, unless it's really going to help you with your customer base or your employees and what we can talk about that. But it's super tricky for any individual firm to walk out alone. Right. And we need the business community to walk out we need the business community to say things like, we need better labor legislation. We can fight about the policy details, but something that looks like, I don't know, mandatory sick leave, something that looks like raising the minimum wage, something that looks like, and now I'm gonna get super controversial, a collective voice for employees. I'm not going to use the word union because it's so charged 
And, you know, there have been terrible unions and there have been great unions. But when we look at healthy societies, we often see that there's a way for employees to express their voice and to stand up to the very large corporations. And then the other thing we need business to stand up and do, again, and no single firm can really do this on its own, is say, we need a real democracy. We have to get money out of politics. I know that as an individual firm, it's great to be able to spend as much money as I want in Washington so that this little rule that no one cares about gets slipped into a bill, and that's great for me. I mean, we saw this with the stimulus, right? Huge amount of money at stake, millions of dollars worth of lobbyists descend, and yes, there's lots of good stuff in the bill, but there's a lot of really weird stuff too. And And this is a classic prisoner's dilemma, a classic, again, I don't mean to get technical, but it's a classic collective action problem. Every single firm has to be able to spend if their competitors can spend, but the whole system would be so much better off if we could get the money out. And, And so my dream for the BRT is to say, we represent, you know, a huge chunk of big firms. Let's sit down together and talk about how to rebuild things so that the society works for everyone. Rebecca, I'm going to uh, bring Jeff in at this point, but I did want to underscore or repeat a a phrase which I really liked. Uh, There was a Kodak moment for the world. And I think it's such a helpful just a notion that we need moments when people can look out there and see the future before it hits them in the face. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Jeff, jump in. Rebecca, as you're describing the the role that the business roundtable can play, uh, I, I'm curious what role. I, well, I, I think this question actually has two parts. Um, the first part's probably a little simpler to say. Um, in maybe an ideal society, what role do the governmental and nonprofit sectors play, as you describe the kind of role that the, the business sector can play? Um, and, and then the, the follow-up question to that, which, which becomes more complicated, at least in my own mind, is when we're thinking often of these large multinational companies and the fact that they're interacting with governments on either a national or more local level, um, do we have a misalignment in terms of size and boundaries that makes the interaction um, that much more difficult between government and business? For sure. <laughs> you are so right. <laughs> Absolutely for sure. The large multinationals have enormous power. They can play governments off against each other. They can play national governments off against local governments. Mm -hmm. This is a super difficult moment we find ourselves in because the business has too much power for its own good. And so one way of reading my book is that it's written for business leaders saying, I know it feels really good right now, but this is going to end badly. You have to find a way to either let go of your own power or allow other actors in the society to build theirs so that we go back to a more healthy balance. This isn't about everyone getting together and singing Kumbaya and love one another right now. This is about creating what used to be called countervailing power so that business, when they sit down at the table, is not facing a bunch of kind of weenie poodles who are like, well, what is it you want, business? That feels good in the short term, but in the long term, you get failing schools, disastrous healthcare systems, angry populace electing, you know, dangerous populists, and uh, and massive environmental damage. It's not good for you either. So what we're looking at is, is a you know, trying to rebalance the system. Now, one way to rebalance is to go like way to the other extreme, right? So let's say China. You could say, well, let's just give the state all the power. 
And sometimes I worry that that's what the populists have in mind, both mm -hmm. left and right populists. Mm -hmm. They're like, if only we had my person in the White House, they would sort this out, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a right-wing person or a left-wing person. And I don't mean to suggest that there's equivalence between the leading political figures. I don't think Bernie Sanders wants to turn the US into a socialist nightmare. I really don't. Mm -hmm. but, but the kind of drive to like, We'll just give all the power to the state and they'll fix it. You know, China has worked pretty well over the last 20 years in the sense that they've grown really fast. They brought a billion people out of poverty. I'm in awe of what they've achieved. But part of that achievement was rooted in letting the private sector go, in tolerating another, uh, another source of power. And now as the Chinese state seeks to consolidate its power, I think all of us can see like, whoa, I don't like where this is going. You know, mass surveillance, millions of people in concentration camps, um, state control over the economy. We know how that movie ends. And, and what's wild is both of these movies end in the same place. If you give business all the power, it ends with business controlling the state, having all the, the say. If you give the state all the power, it ends with business, uh, the state controlling the state. In both cases, you end up with what I call extraction. A few people control both the economic and the political power. And, you, you know, it, it, it's horrible. It, it always seems to end with the death of millions of people. So what we need is balance. And so the reason I wrote my book is because, you know, I'm a business school professor. I talk to business people. I'm like, you need to learn to hold yourself back. Get money out of politics, make the democratic process more effective. In the States right now, more than 70% of people think the system is rigged against them, that the rich get to write the rules. And you know, when you look at the data, it's not clear they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th there's no wonder they're saying, well, I don't care about democracy. You ask the young people now, and they place less like only 25% of teenagers say that democracy is important to them. That's a disaster. You know, democracy has all kinds of problems, but it's the best we've got at creating a state that's transparent and flexible and you can vote the bastards out when they don't work for you, but has the power to stand up to business. And so I know this sounds in some ways hopelessly quixotic, right? We need to, you know, just completely change the system. But I'm reminded I was doing another podcast with an academic colleague and he looked at me and he said, Rebecca, your book shouldn't be called Reimagining Capitalism, should, we? should it? It should be called, can we please get back to 1950s capitalism only without the misogyny and the racism? <laughs> and, that's catchy. Well, well, you know, that, that's just not going to sell any books. But um, <laughs> Even though it's a world on fire in there. So. <laughs> if you ask me, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. I mean, we could also look at, say, you know, what they do in Denmark, which is, you know, Denmark has its problems, but my goodness, they really have a kind of uneasy, you know, an alliance, a kind of careful negotiation between civil society and government and business. But we, we used to have that too. Yep. That's not like that's an un-American thing. We, we used to be able to do that. Rebecca, I'm going to break in a second just to remind everybody, uh, this is a reminder that you're listening to our radio program on Sirius XM 132, Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Usim. I'm here with my colleagues and Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And we are in uh, vigorous discussion here with Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson, author of the newly published Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And so with a few minutes to go, Anne, why don't you jump in at yeah. this point as well? Uh, Rebecca, I'm enthralled. I'll follow you anywhere. I'm on your team. <laughs> I'm with you. Put me to work. Uh, but just let me, if I may, take this in, in the last few minutes in a personal direction. You know, where does your passion come from? You know, was there a moment when you were a young person when you realized, <laughs> you know, this is this is my passion. This is my direction. I wish I could tell you that when I was in my 20s, I was fired with a passion to save the world, but I was not. Mm -hmm. I was fired with a passion to have a good job with interesting stuff and get time off on the weekends. <laughs> that I, I didn't. I, I had a passion for the outdoors. 
I've always been in love with trees. You know, mm. people say, oh, you're just a tree hugger. I'm a genuine tree hugger. I go out and hug trees. Uh, when I was a teenager, my, uh, my family life was a little bit troubled. I guess all of us have issues. Only a very few escape that. So I had some difficulties as a teenager. And I found that, that if I could go out and walk through the woods, I felt connected to something much longer and stronger and older than myself and my troubles. Uh, there was a tree I used to climb as a kid and I would lie in and I'd just look up at the sky and I'd smell the leaves and hear the wind in the tree and everything would just fall away. And, and so ever since then, I've been just passionate about the outdoors. And I understand that's a very privileged thing to be able to say that I had the freedom and the resources to go hiking and spend time outside. But no, until I was in my, God, this is seriously embarrassing, my <clears throat> middle 40s, <laughs> I, uh, I kept my job and my passion quite separate. I mean, I love my work. I was the Eastman Kodak professor. I worked with firms that were trying to change. That was really cool. When I was with Nokia, I got to do all kinds of crazy things like jump into holes through the ice after having a sauna. I mean, it was a great life. I loved it. But it wasn't until I saw um, Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Oh. And it wasn't until energy firms started showing up in my office and saying, you know, we have to switch. How do we do that? And I mm. saw how much difficulty they were having that I really kind of clicked into, oh, my goodness, the world is not just always going to be there. Yeah. And maybe what I know a bit about can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, this can sound super elitist. You know, I care about the trees. I care about the outdoors. But, but it's the fabric of the world I care about. I mean, the idea that there are children growing up who will <laughs> who have to breathe the kind of air that comes from fossil fuel plants, who will see the world around them destroyed. I mean, many of the people who are the least well off are those most dependent on the natural world for clean water, for firewood, for um, gathering, you know, for keeping, keeping their crops. These are the people that are going to be hurt. We can't just tear up the planet. And, and, and for me, that, that just seems like obviously true. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I love capitalism. I love all we do, but, but got to make sure there's a planet to, uh, you know, to do it on. And, and of course, it's not like the world is coming to an end, but we, we shouldn't have called it climate change. We should have called it global weirding. <laughs> you know, everything's going to get super weird mm -hmm. and that's going to hurt a lot of people. And so, yeah, I, I feel passionately about it. Oh, well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Mike. <laughs> Rebecca, we're close to the end here. I want to pick up on a phrase we're just about to sum up. And by the way, we always do a very brief AAR, After Act Review. So that's my heads up to my two colleagues uh, as we close it off in a minute. Um, a phrase that, uh, a quote that's in your book, we're, we're pebbles in an avalanche of change. I really like that uh, for a lot of reasons, but just if you could explain it and why it's important to think of ourselves as pebbles, yes, uh, small parts of a bigger phenomenon, but an avalanche is made up of pebbles. So we're part of it. We're not the force behind it, but uh, we we owe it to ourselves. We are all to the next generation to be part of that avalanche, I think. So anyway, pick up on that. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you like that image because it's been really helpful to me. Because realistically, each of us is tiny. There are 7 billion people on the planet. And here I am talking about changing the entire structure of Western capitalism. But change comes from people deciding that it needs to happen. And change will definitely not happen. If we do nothing, nothing will happen. So it, we've got to do something and we're just pebbles, but you know, that's what avalanches are. And we never know which pebble triggers the whole thing. And, and I found as I've worked on this, that it's the best possible antidote to despair that it's easy to despair, particularly when we're sitting at home right now and things can seem pretty black. 
But, you know, the human race is amazing. And we have the technology and the resources to drive change. I can see this avalanche coming. It's coming sooner or later. But if we move now, it will come sooner. And we will have the privilege of being part of it. Rebecca, great note to end on. Everybody knows where to find your book. It's on all the usual uh, places to buy books these days that we all know about. If people would like to know more about you personally, though, what would be your recommendation? So um, I have a, a book website up where I talk a little bit about where I wrote the book. It's very cool, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire.org. And I have a personal website, RebeccaHenderson.com, where you can check me out as well, uh, get a sense for what I write, what I think about. And of course, this being the 21st century, you can follow me on Twitter. Oh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so we will. Right. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the dialogue. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It's been a great, great pleasure. Thank you. All right. Great to have you. And as I already uh, anticipated, we're going to do our uh, literally one minute to after action review. Beginning with you, Anne, main point we ought to hang on to. Well, Mike, uh, I think just thinking in terms of a Kodak moment is just... Uh, so poetic and telling in all ways, we have the opportunity to see this moment as a wonderful uh, memento of the past, and we hope a window into the future if we only act and act responsibly and rebalance capitalism. So that's my favorite um, metaphor for the show. All right, and good review, Jeff. Yeah, I think I just want to highlight uh, the notion that Rebecca put forward, which is that a, a more robust business sector needs uh, a more robust governmental sector. Yeah. And my way of ending is to reference what I think I recall from my own travel in years past, arriving, for example, at the Grand Canyon. And Kodak had a practice working with, it must have been with the National Park Service, to put up signs. Here's a a place for a Kodak photograph. Mm -hmm. And uh, to apply that into uh, what we're talking mm -hmm. about right now, um, we do need a Kodak moment and we really need a place where we can see the future before it engulfs us. Mm -hmm. So this is a place to take the picture and look to mm -hmm. the future uh, to make certain we own it and we're not a, a victim of it. So mm -hmm. with that, thank you everybody for joining the program. You know where to find us, of course. Also on Twitter at SXM Business. Special thanks to our guest, of course, Rebecca Henderson. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, for putting this together. Our excellent sound engineer as well, Dion Simpkins. I'm Mike Useem. You're listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 